You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robin. Well, welcome to the tribe. I'm glad you guys could make it. Did anybody make out to our walk uh, Friday night? A bunch of you guys. Yeah, what a good time. Would you guys join me in thanking Margot Garza for her leadership on that? Margot, would you just kind of stand up and wave? She's over there somewhere. So anyways, thanks to Margot for the leadership and pulling off an amazing event. And we've been in this conversation recently about spiritual adulting, where we want to mature in our faith. But you know what I feel like is that a lot of people throw the baby out with the bathwater, and in an effort to spiritually mature, they throw away the childlike playfulness that God has for us to operate in and live in. I kind of learned this some years ago when I was in college and I was doing nursing home ministry. We would go visit these older folks that sometimes were lonely and just needed someone to talk to. And there was this one particular older lady. I bet she was at least in her 90s or so. And she loved that old Hank Williams song, Hey, Good Looking. You know that song, Hank Williams Sr.? And so the, the nursing home employee took out an old vinyl record and he put that song on and that old lady would start singing that song. She'd be all, hey, good looking, what you got a cooking? How's about cooking something up with me? And then she would walk up to each person in our ministry group, and she would reach out her hand. She'd say, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? And she'd grab you by the hand, and she pulled each one of us out on the dance floor and started dancing around with us, and everybody had a marvelous time that day at that stinky old nursing home because this one old lady in the midst of growing old, she kept the twinkle in her eyes. And how many of you know people, young and old, who lose the twinkle in their eyes? They lose their playful creativity. And so the idea that I want to submit to you is this, that the Imago Dei is creative play. Now, I'm going to explain what Imago Dei is later on, but... uh, Would you say that idea with me out loud when I point to you both in the video cafe and here in the theater? Ready? Here we go. The Imago Dei is creative play. That's what it is. It's creative play. But it's kind of hard to keep that twinkle in your eye when you experience the eye rolling of cynicism in our world. I was reading about creativity in preparation for this talk. And I was kind of surprised about the cynicism about creativity. People were criticizing creativity. I thought, what's not to love about creativity and art and playfulness? But of course, where all things are cynical in New York, you can read the New York Times. And I read this article, Creative Work. Uh, Does creative work free you from the drudgery or just security? And the article went on to get I guess, cynical about creativity as a word because politicians are using it, right? When Trump came into office, he said he wanted to harness the creativity of the people. When President Obama left office, giving his farewell speech, he said he was encouraged by the unselfishness and creativity of this generation. And so anytime a politician starts using a word, people question the motivations of those who use that particular word. And so the article goes on to get cynical about how too many people think that they're creative. So yeah, if you're really talented, like Kanye West, who can create these really great tennis shoes and music, then then you're a real artist. But it really questioned the ability for the rest of the, I guess, grassroots uh, folk like us 
to be artists, look at the conclusion of the article. It says, the word creative puts lipstick or more precisely a pair of Warburg Parker eyeglasses and a sleeve tattoo on a pig. It dresses up a ruptured social contract, the raw deal of the gig economy as bohemian freedom. And I think that the cynicism of this world is beating the creativity out of many of us. And what does the cynicism lead to anyway? Does it give us any real answers or does it just lead to despair? And I think it's just leading to despair. That's why we have epidemic levels of depression, anxiety, and suicide in our culture is because too many people are embracing cynicism. Cynicism keeps us from experiencing love and relationship and uh, creativity and happiness. And most importantly, it keeps us from experiencing God. So what does God have to say about playful creativity, childlikeness, Well, look with me at Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. So, what Jesus is saying is in order to get into the kingdom, you have to be humble like a child. In order to be great in his kingdom, you have to be humble and childlike, like these little children. How many child cynics do you know? Probably not too many, do you? Because children believe, children have faith, children are creative. I saw a little survey in a book. The name of the book was Say Yes to Your Potential. And they asked in the survey how many people felt like they were creative. And the survey revealed that 2% of men and women who were in their 40s were highly creative. 2% of 35-year-olds as well as 30-year-olds were highly creative. And it stayed at that low percentile until they got to 7-year-olds who were 10% highly creative. But look at 5-year-olds. 90% of 5-year-olds are highly creative. Something's happening to us, isn't it? It's like we're having the inner artist beat out of us. This is what Pablo Picasso was getting at when he says every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once he grows up. Isn't that the truth? And that's what we're trying to embrace today. But look at the childlike creativity of God in the early parts of the Bible, all the way back at Genesis 1-1, the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God what? He created. He created the heavens and the earth. Now skip down a few verses to verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So what you have taking place in this passage is that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there together. And God the Father says, Hey, let's make the humans in our image image. Let's put our image inside of them. In theological terms, that's something called the Imago Dei. So when I say Imago Dei, you say image of God. When I say image of God, you say Imago Dei. So uh, Imago Dei, image of God. Very good. The Imago Dei is what makes us different from all the rest of the creation. 
It's what gives us the capacity and the ability to make moral choices, to make philosophical choices. It's our connection to God. It's God's DNA inside you and I. I brought a video. I was, I was thinking about this when I was looking at my, my fish tank this past week. And so take a look at my fish tank here. You'll see me using the force. Take a look. I'm using the force on my fish. You will come to the top. See, you will come to the top. They all swim to the top. But what you already know about that is my fish are not making a decision because I've got the force or because they like me. It's instinct. They want to eat. They eat. They swim. They poop. They swim. They eat. And then they repeat that cycle. See, if I had a conversation with my fish, it might go something like this. Hi, fish. And they'd say, hi, Doug. And then I'd say, what's the meaning of life, fish? They'd say, Hi, Doug. I mean, there's not a lot going on up there, but instinct. And look, we're different, aren't we, than all of creation. We can make moral, philosophical, and creative choices, and we're spiritual beings, aren't we? We're spiritual beings. In fact, even people who don't believe in God understand that we're spiritual beings. Uh, I read this Buddhist blog called The Lion's Roar, and they were interviewing Julia Cameron, an author who has been very popular amongst creatives and artists for many years. And in this article, they asked Julia Cameron, how would you sum up the connection between spirituality and creativity? Look at what she said. By the way, this is a person who's not a Christian. She says, I have a hard time separating the two, spirituality and creativity. I would say that as we become more spiritual, we automatically become more creative. And as we become more creative, we automatically become more spiritual. I'm not sure why that is. I might say, look at this, it's God's will for us to be creative. She's picking up on the fact that we all have the DNA of God inside of us. We have the Imago Dei, and it's expressed through creativity, whether you believe in God or know God at all. And today I want to submit to you four ways of the Imago Dei. And the first one is this, be creative at your work, at work. Ask yourself the question, how can I be creative at my current job? I totally get that not everyone here works as a painter or an artist, you know? Some of you are in construction. Some of you are in the military. Some of you are in medical professions or education, but all of us have space for creative expression in what we do right now. In fact, in Amish communities, when someone in the community needs a new house, the Amish community comes together and they all partner together to build that person a new house. And you know what they call it? A frolic. Because the Amish have learned to play at work. And we have to learn to play at our jobs and to play as we build not just houses, but relationships and churches and artwork. See, it's playfulness, but uh, even though it's play, we got to understand that creativity is hard work because creativity comes from the struggle. How many songs have been created that are wonderful songs that came out of the pain of the struggle? See? Um, I was reading on creativity in the New York Times, and there was this guy named Tucker who's a full-time professional artist from Baltimore, Maryland, who owns a small creative firm who has several employees as a part of that firm. And he 
went on to explain that all the great artists of history managed staffs and worked hard at it. Everybody from Michelangelo to Andy Warhol, they had staff members that reported to them and that they had to manage and they had to work hard at creating the great works that, uh, that were they're on their canvases and the like. And here's what this guy says, Tucker says, poor economic outcomes usually reflect the artist's own lack of self-esteem rather than the market's need for the arts. Starving artist is simply an excuse for lazy, self-absorbed artists. Get over yourself. Get to work. Stop whining. Do what you love and change the world. And I think a lot of us who have a creative bent and slant and embrace it have to also embrace the hard work that comes along with it. But creative, uh, creativity prepares you for the future job market. Did you know that? Expressing the imago Dei, the image of God in you, just might save your job someday. You know why? Because of artificial intelligence. It's how you separate yourself. See? Those of you that are Uber drivers right now, you understand that there are self-driving cars on the road in San Francisco right now. And so everything is becoming increasingly automated in the workplace. I read in the Scientific American, can AI create true art? And this article asked the hard questions about the place of human beings in the workforce and in the marketplace. And then they did this experiment. They did AI art. And they created this artwork under the name, and they brought it to the World Art Auction under the name Christie. It's like a fake name. And people bought it. And the artwork of the AI was indistinguishable from that of the real human artists. People bought it. Let that land on you just for a minute, is that art was being created by artificial intelligence that people couldn't tell the difference. But as you drill down on the article, they finally come to a place where they admit, look at this quote, they admit the creative spark. What's creative spark? It's a mago day, isn't it? The creative spark behind creating a work of art is still very much what? Human. It's clear that even in the creative field, sophisticated technologies can be used to enhance our capabilities, but crucially, they still require human intelligence to define the overarching rules and steer the way. So at the end of the day, the Imago Day within human beings is needed to create algorithms and programs to even make the AI that serves us. And so perhaps our computers aren't that much more advanced than the fish in my aquarium. It still requires someone to arrange it, see? But what we've got to learn to do is uh, learn what separates us from staying in connection with the image of God in us, the Imago Dei within us. We've got to learn to get rid of, kill those childlike creative killers, remove them. I referenced earlier Julia Cameron, who wrote the book, The Artist's Way, and it was a sentinel book, a bestseller that many artists and creatives have read for many, many years. And in that book, she urges her readers to find their inner naysayers and name them. So if you ever put a name to the inner naysayer within you that's killing your creativity. I have one of those, and I've named it. And when I, when I read this, it made me realize I need to put a name to these things. So what I named one of mine is Insecure Ivan, okay? Here's where Insecure Ivan comes out. 
is that sometimes you guys will fill out those connection cards, I'll get feedback about my sermons from you guys. And this is gonna come to a sh as a shock to you, but there are people that don't like my sermons. <laughs> and when I find that out, here comes Insecure Ivan. And Insecure Ivan says, he didn't like your sermon. She didn't like your sermon. It's because your sermon sucked. And you suck. And I just say, well, I don't like them anyway. They can go to church somewhere else, you know, if you don't like my sermon. But you know, I have to get rid of insecure Ivan. And you have them too. You have all these different voices. And sometimes you have to name them. Give them a name. That way you can discard them. You know, in the New Testament of the Bible, Paul calls it taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And let me show you a few creative killers that we need to deal with in our own hearts and minds. Some would hear the one that says, you're not a creative person, or don't ask questions, or stay within the lines. Don't be silly. Be practical. Be serious. That's not logical, or that's never been done before. It's too much work. You're too young, or you're too old. Have you heard any of these? These are the creative killers, and we've got to expunge them from our brains, from our minds to connect with our Imago day. But the path back to that twinkle in your eyes, because have you lost it, some of you? Be honest. You've been beat down so many years. It's time to get it back, isn't it? But the path back is to dare to dream again. Dare to dream again. You know, in the New Testament book of Acts, we're told that Young men will see visions, and these old men will dream dreams. And dreams are for you and I, you know? I want to give you a creative exercise to do for some of you. Go home and take out a blank piece of paper and dream up a preferred future. If you could change the world, draw it out, paint it out, write it out on that blank piece of paper how you would like to change this world. Because when we walk with God, what happens is, is we see the injustice of the world and we dream about a better world and how we can change it. So dream about your future. For some of you, dream about that other career that you've always thought you would love to do. Some of you dream about actually experiencing love or experiencing love again because you thought you never would. Some are dreaming about a day when you'll finally be completely free from those dysfunctional habits and addictions and behaviors that have wreaked havoc in your life. Dream about it, and then it can be creative. Because look, our dreams are intended to serve as material from which we create. Did you catch that? Our dreams are the material from which we create things. So, for example, this room that we're worshiping in right now, it was a dream in someone's head, and then it was created. The same is true with every motorcycle or car that we ride in or on. The same is true when we watch football this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, for football. It means you love us, right? Um, but when you watch it, every uniform was dreamed in someone's head before it was created. Steampunk podiums were dreamed about before someone could preach from one, right? On. So we use our dreams as the material of what we're going to Create Now, anytime people talk about dreams, they always mention Martin Luther King Jr. because he's the famous guy who said, I have a dream, not I have a goal. 
Some of you are so goal-oriented, you skip the first step, and it is to dream about what a right goal should be. Goals are important for our lives, aren't they? Because they give focus to our dreams, but you don't skip the first step, which is to dream it first, have a God-inspired dream to put your goals to. You know, goals are good because they give us focus, but dreams give us power. That's why the British author and philosopher James Allen said, dreamers are the saviors of the world because we dream about a better future for people. And the reason that Christ followers of all people in the world should keep the creative twinkle in their eyes is because of number four, the gospel is all about new creation. That's what it's about. In fact, when you read John's gospel, John was Jesus' best friend when he walked on the earth. And John's gospel closely parallels the creation account from the Old Testament of Genesis. Let me show it to you on a chart. If you look at Genesis in the left-hand column on day zero, in the beginning, God did what? Created. Now look over in the right-hand column in John, day zero, it says God what? Created everything through him. Speaking of Jesus, he was there. Now go back over to the Genesis column, uh, day one, and God said, let there be what? Light. Now let's look at John on day one. His life brought what? Light. Jesus brought light into the world. Now go back to John for our Genesis, rather, on day two. Let there be a vault between the what? The waters. Now let's go uh, over to John day two. I baptize with what? Water. See, we could go on and on and on, but for the sake of time, uh, we can't go through every parallel of Genesis in the Gospel of John, but they're there. I want to skip all the way to chapter 20 where John is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how his body was no longer in the tomb. And I learned about this from the spooky, smart, genius theologian N.T. Wright. He's probably one of the smartest individuals alive on the planet today. And look at what he says. John's narrative is nearly complete at that point, still following through the themes of creation and new creation. Jesus goes to his death with the word tetelestai, it is finished, echoing Genesis 2, 1 through 2. The six-day work is done, and the seventh day God rested, and this time in the darkness of the tomb before the new creation, which, as John emphasized, happens on the first day of the week. The first day of the week was when Jesus rose again from the dead, just like God created on the first day of the week, and Jesus ushered in the new kingdom, the new reality that is among us. The kingdom of God, sure, it's in the future, but it's now. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. And those who connect with the Imago Day and create a better future are bringing that kingdom here now in the earthly realm that we can physically and tangibly see because God put a dream and a vision in their hearts. And this is what happened with Paul. He was changed from a guy that hated God, hated Christians. He loved actually God of the Bible, but he hated Christian people and he hated Jesus and he persecuted them. And then God made him something different. That's why he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the what? New creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And look, God has something new for all of us. 
in the future. We don't need to look at the past. Just the rear view mirror is really small, right? So we just look at it to learn from it, but our windshield is big. Let's look to the future of the dreams that God places in our heart to bring his kingdom here. And what you need to understand today is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what makes you feel filthy or sinful, or for some of you, you feel broken, you feel vulnerable, or uh, you may feel powerless or small or insignificant, but he says, no, I want to make you something new. I was reading about this from Ravi Zacharias. Some of you have heard of him, brilliant guy, and he wrote this book called Recapture the Wonder. And in this book, he tells a story about Mike and Sharon who took a trip to Romania. And I've been to Romania, so I started leaning into the story in the book because I know the conditions of children and orphanages there. And Mike and Sharon saw this little baby at an orphanage, and I could almost picture it in my mind. It was a little baby named George that didn't have any arms. And what they describe is that the orphanage workers did not want to give George the same care that they would give other kids. They wanted to give him minimal care because they thought they were kind of superstitious and they thought that since he didn't have arms that he would bring bad luck in their lives. Well, then Mike and Sharon met the biological mother of little George. She couldn't afford to take care of him. That's why he was in that orphanage. And that's the case in many third world scenarios. And they had this conversation with George's biological mother, and they said, hey, look, we would like to adopt George. And she questioned their motives. She said, are you going to take little George over to America and do experiments on him? Because <laughs> she was kind of superstitious. And they said, no, that's not our intent at all. And she said, she asked him, why would you want a baby like mine? And that's when they had the wherewithal to open up. Sharon opened up a Romanian Bible to Psalm 139, 13, where it says, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And that verse explains that baby George, even though he didn't have arms, that he was fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And even though the forces of this world would denigrate his value, that he's a masterpiece to our God. And when that text and that truth landed on that Romanian mother, a tear went down her face and she said, if that's what you believe about my little boy, then you may adopt him as yours. And Sharon and Mike brought that little boy back to the United States and they raised him and they loved him and they taught him to use eating utensils, knives and forks and you know, spoons with his feet. And he became quite the spectacle in restaurants when they were eating because his feet skills were so good. People would look and not only did he have skills with his feet, but he had this contagious smile that would light up a room, right? Well, when George was eight years old, Sharon decided she wanted George to learn how to play a classical instrument, the cello. But it would be quite the challenge because he would have to play with his feet. So Sharon got George a cello teacher. 
and he started learning, and it was a challenge. Uh, and then came the day for little George's first recital, and it was tense. Uh, you know, when, when, he, when he walks up on the stage, and when the cello teacher brought his cello and a little pillow that would hold the cello neck up so he could play it with his feet, there was, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. It's quiet. And he was about to play his first note, and he struck his first note, and it was sour as anything, and it got more tense in the room. And then George turned red with embarrassment, and something came over him. He just shrugged his shoulders and lit up the room with that big smile, and his teacher nodded to him to try again. And he tried again, and he played that piece perfectly without any errors at all. He'd never done that before. He played it without any errors, and it was beautiful. And after he was done, it was kind of an awkward moment where people didn't know what to do. And the most advanced student of this teacher stood up and started clapping, and everyone else followed suit. The whole room gave little George a standing ovation for what he had done. And Sharon told Mike, Mike, here's what I want you to understand about that, is that every time we've practiced that piece, George has made many, many errors in the playing of it. And this was the first time today that he played it without error. And look, some of us feel fray. We feel vulnerable. We feel bad about the sour notes that we play in this life. But like George, George was a kid who was an unwanted, armless orphan, but he was transformed to be the son of loving parents and now an artist. And that is what the power of God does in our lives as he makes new creations of us. Let's bow for prayer. And as we bow before God, perhaps God has brought someone here today to draw you to himself, that you would see his loving intent for you. He doesn't mean you harm, but he means to give you full understanding of the Imago Dei in you. And if you would like love relationship with God through Jesus today, I want you to talk to him in your own heart and mind and say something like this. Look, God, I know I've played some sour notes in my day and I've gotten some stuff wrong. But right now, the best I know how, I'm choosing to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And Jesus, I welcome you into my life to make me a new creation. I choose to become your daughter, your son. Father, for the rest of us, I know that many of us have lost the twinkle in our eyes and we've fallen into the despair of cynicism. And we say we want to discard cynicism and the inner naysayers and the creative killers. And as we grow spiritually and as we mature in you, we ask that you would restore to us the Imago Dei of creative play. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and lives. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.